And have I? And have I yet? And have I written a burn upon my secret brain? My memory is a flame. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with poet Abby Miner about her book, As I Set, A Descent, and her long poem, Once in a Black Silk Gown, a film noir, which focuses on the life and the death of Anne Lohman, known as Madame Rostel, a.k.a. the wickedest woman in New York. The one thing I would not want is, I would not want someone to read this poem feeling like they were trying to make a judgment about Anne Lohman or about Madame Rostel. I would want someone to be asking the same question that I went and asking, what does this person mean, rather than is this person good or bad? That would be my greatest wish and I think would, would be the best way to read it. Poet Abby Meyer and the wickedest woman in New York on Arts and Letters. And still, my camera rolling, wondering, is heaven a city? Is the apparition of her, the veil of her, a city or a garden within a city? From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Menick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today, we'll be talking with poet Abby Miner about her book, As I Said, A Descent, published by Ricochet Editions. And in particular, a poem which comprises the book's second section, Once in a Black Silk Gown, a film noir. The poem focuses on the life and death of Anne Lohman, known as Madame Rostel, who arrived in Manhattan in the 1830s and provided contraceptives and other reproductive services for those who sought and can afford them. I don't know after years what she is, what heaven is, what the island is with its birds rising like handfuls of chipped porcelain and smoke. Through the poem's lens, Madame Rostel is darkened and lit by many forces, called by some the wickedest woman in New York. I needed to go on this journey, and, and my interest in her, and my curiosity about her, and my interest in the way that the real Anne Lohman and then the character of Madame Rostel kind of coexist, that's really what the poem is about. It's not really about these historical details, even though it's full of historical details. And do I, will I ever suffer such obedience not to beg to be called good? like to invite a reader into maybe experiencing parts of, if, if the reader is, is um, identifies as, as from the United States, experiencing maybe parts of our history that they might not be familiar with. Once in a Black Silk Gown and poet Abby Miner on arts and letters. So Abby Miner, welcome to Arts Th and Letters. Thank you so much, Brad. I'm delighted to be here. Why did you decide to cast this in the form of a film through poetry? Yeah, that's a great question, Brad. So maybe I'll just back up a second and talk about the larger project. So this is a long poem, and it's one of two long poems that anchor a book. And I was looking for a way to get outside of my own experiences and contemporary conversations and kind of wanting to look back and think about how have these conversations about people's reproductive lives unfolded throughout American history. And it was kind of just this wanting to be in different times and places and think about it from different perspectives. I cast the poem as a film, I think, because when I discovered this woman and doing some historical research, this woman, Anne Lohman, who lived and worked in Manhattan for over 50 years, she came to Manhattan in the early 1830s. Uh, she was born in England. 
and she worked as a seamstress. And then she eventually got into a trade that lots of people were in at the time, actually providing contraceptive powders and tonics and various sort of reproductive services. And she eventually started to provide abortion. It wasn't illegal at the time. And also, it's important to know that at the time, the medical system was very different. So she started her work at a time when Abortion wasn't illegal. And also, you didn't have to have a license to be a doctor. Like, the medical system was kind of helter-skelter, and the American Medical Association didn't exist yet. So I was just sort of interested in in what life was like then and, and her work. So she took on an alias. She went by the name of Madame Restell, which was also kind of not unusual for doctors, and especially doctors working in reproductive care. A French name would have signaled to people at the time that she provided contraception and abortion. Because at Mm. that time, as I think is still true, people associated France with sexual liberty. So she took this kind of French sounding name to kind of signal to people what her services were. I think the reason that I wanted to situate the poem as a film is because it was really important to me from the beginning. And I kept telling myself this, that I wasn't writing about her as a way of just vivifying the historical Anne Lohman partially because it was really hard for me to find actual information about her. All the accounts are secondhand. Yeah, except was, for the court transcripts. Well, even that. She because doesn't she doesn't speak. speak. Yeah. yeah, so it's like everything I could know about her was being mediated through men and mostly men who were very hostile to her. And so it felt like to try to find out who the real Anne Lohman was, A, wasn't possible, and B, kind of wasn't interesting to me because the character of Madame Restell, even though it became a caricature, and in some ways you could say this character she created ultimately killed her, I didn't want to just reject that character or that caricature. It's kind of this dark and stormy character, you know? She was always depicted as in a black silk gown or often the opulence of her clothing. She did become wealthy doing what she did, and people really didn't like that. And she was referred to as the wickedest woman in New York. And just help me with this, Abby, to the degree you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Who is I, the poet? Is I you? Mm-hmm. Or is I a persona? Or is I the poet, as in the metaphorical poet who's telling the larger story? I think sometimes in this poem, the poet is a persona, but sometimes, and I don't know how clear it is to readers, to me, it feels clear. Sometimes the poet really is, you know. I'm trying to pull the curtain away and say, here's why and how I'm interacting with these images and these stories. Here's me making this film. So it is me. It feels like, to me, it feels like me. Once I, the poet, lay in the bath wearing all my mother's rings and asked to be called Pearl. Once, about 138 years after the madam's death, I took a bath in May in the hot smell of diamonds in the heart of this metropolis, thinking this is a story about arrangements of love. I certainly enjoyed putting on the costume and persona of Ristel. That allowed me to say, hey, people describe, you know, not only people who have abortions, but but women who claim bodily autonomy in lots of ways as, you know, I don't really need to list all the things that people say, but to kind of even reclaim some of that dark and stormy is to say, okay, well, maybe I am the wickedest woman in New York, and, and what would that feel like? And that was very healing for me and and kind of also creatively exciting, you know, to be able to say, well, let's try being the wickedest woman for a while and see what that feels like. Then, 
You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with poet Abby Miner about her book, As I Said, A Descent, and her poem, Once in a Black Silk Gown, a film noir. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and this is Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with poet Abby Miner as she talks about the life of Anne Lohman, known as Madame Rostel, the wickedest woman in New York. You know, there's like an etching of her, like an image of her that, an, a woodcut, I think, that appeared in a, in a newspaper in the late 1840s where she has these like billowing, looks almost like billowing wings behind her, this very sort of dark character, and she's holding this little devil with wings. This looks like a little bat or a devil, and it has its teeth sunk into this little baby. handsome, engraved as a flying, fat-faced devil spreads its brunette wings in 1847, spars a tiny ivory baby that doesn't look too different from paintings of the Madonna to me. And so the thing that was being conveyed at that time was this is this evil, wicked witch who kills babies, which has been a stereotype about midwives and reproductive care providers for many centuries. I didn't want to just write this poem that sort of tried to rescue the historical Anne Lohman from this caricature. I felt like they both have to exist and coexist because they're both real, ultimately. Even though this poem captures two identities, two bodies, Mm -hmm. uses film as a way of looking at it, being looked at, let's talk just about the facts, just so mm-hmm, we have a mm-hmm, background. Mm-hmm. So she's born in Painswick, England mm-hmm. in 1812. And so she emigrates from England. She has a baby. Yeah, she has a daughter. The details about her are a little bit wavery, I'll say. You know, I've looked at different books that sometimes say a different year here or there. But yeah, she comes with her first husband. She has a daughter. Her first husband dies in 1833. She works as a seamstress, so she's widowed and not with many resources. She meets a man named Charles Lohman, who was known as a free thinker. He was a printer. He was a member of of circles of thinkers and printers and journalists who were, you know, what we would think of as progressive today. He was connected with people who historians now call the sex radicals, people who were advocating for people to be able to limit reproduction or control their fertility and also people who formed what we would now think of as communes and people who were just sort of advocating in different ways to change some of the kind of norms around marriage and reproduction. So he was quite progressive and she married him. And in the late 1830s, she began selling abortive fashions, you know, herbs, powders, things that would would help with abortion and performing abortions. From Madame Rostel, you could order Portuguese female pills for $5 a box or $3 a half box. Or you could also buy, for all disorders incident to women, AIDS white clover injection or Allen's mixture or Apco capsules or Belcher's female cure or Blair's female tablets or Burroughs antiseptic liquid or Cadet's injection or Carter's relief for women or Chinchester's diamond brand pills or Chinchester's penny royal pills or Cook's cotton root compound or Dr. Cameron's patent family regulator, or Dr. Catton's tansy regulator, or Dr. Champlin's red woman's relief, or Dr. Duponco's golden periodical pills for females, or Dr. Monroe's French periodical pills, or Dr. Peter's French renovating pills, or Dr. Root's female wash, or Dr. Van Humbert's female renovating pills, or Dupree's French specific pills, 
or Edie's carbolic, or Farrer's Catholic pills, or French lunar pills, or Griffith's mixture, or Hardy Woman's friend, or Hooper's female pills, or Lamotte's French remedy, or Lyon's periodical drops, or Madame Leroy's regulative pills, or Mrs. Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound, or Primo Ergo Apiol capsules, or Rimmel's medicated vinegar, or the Samaritan's gift for females, or Wife's protector, or Womanette, or Velnos's vegetable syrup. So where did you find all of these admixtures and, yeah. and pills and injections and regulators? And I did a lot of research to write this poem. And I mean, I don't know that I knew that I was writing this poem when I did the research. I just started reading a lot. And I'm into 19th century U.S. culture. You know, I read lots of scholarly books that were published in the, the 90s and in the early 2000s. You know, a book called Contraception and Abortion in 19th Century America by a scholar named Janet Brody, a book called When Abortion Was a Crime. Uh, by Leslie Reagan and and lots of other books. And, and they would mention in their discussions, oh, you know, sometimes they would be providing an example of something and mention one of these. And so every time I would come across something like this, I would just write it down on a little list. And then I didn't know what I was going to do with that. But when I decided to write about Ristel and Lohman, I wanted people to know when they were reading this poem, the context that she was working in, and that it was in a lot of ways, di very dissimilar to our contemporary context. I, I knew that a lot of contemporary readers wouldn't understand that although she was quite well known and infamous, that she was really one of many. And she was she was operating in this kind of busy milieu of people who were selling and competing and, and advertising. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm imagining you're collecting these one at a time, and then you had to figure out how you were going to order it. And yeah. You used alphabetical I just order. alphabetized them. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of liked that. Uh, did you I, play around with the order? No, I, I, I always wanted to write a, an abyssendarium. And, you know, I really do remember Mrs. Lydia Pinkham's That's the one that survived into the, well into the 20th century. And, you know, some of these probably were used simply to regulate menstruation. And Mrs. Lydia Pinkham's might have been one of those, or she might have had different kinds of things for, for different purposes, certainly into the 20th it century. It also sounds yeah. safer. Advertised in the New York Sun, female renovating pills, an effectual remedy for suppression, irregularity, and all cases where nature does not perform her proper and regular course. They must not be taken during pregnancy, as they would produce abortion. Revision, March 1839. They must not be taken during P, star, 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 Y, as they would produce A, star, 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 N. Revision, May 1839. They must not be taken during P-Y as they would produce A-N. Revision, July 1839. They must not be taken during as they would produce. Revision, November 1839. Safe under all circumstances except one. happening almost every month. Yeah, and that's a really um, interesting moment. So this is, um, this language comes from an advertisement that, so there's a scholar who did some work on how these kinds of pills were advertised, and he 
shows, okay, here's the same version of this ad over these four months. And you can see how this conflict or tension is literally playing out in these advertisements. And you can imagine that between the person who's advertising the pill and the editor of the New York Sun, that there's this back and forth saying, okay, maybe you can't say that. Let's put in stars. You can't say that. You know, maybe because it had just recently become illegal after quickening. And so I'm imagining that that those conversations, I mean, I think it had always been veiled, you know, sure. um, but you can really see in these revisions how there's kind of this struggle to figure out how are we going to talk about this and that they decided on safe under all circumstances except one. And they they just knew that their readers would know what that meant and that people would continue to buy it and because they knew what that meant. advertisers are figuring out the most effective ways to, it seems like a dual-edged sword, right? Yep, definitely. How can we get around what the editors are allowing us to say and still communicate with the people we're trying to reach? The next moment talks a little bit about pretty much anything French. Pretty much anything French was for A-N. Maybe the half box was for if you were only half P-T. In spite of brisk competition, it was her conductive body, her lustrousness, that was synonymous with A-N. So, nine times out of ten, you're better off searching the archives for Restellism than for anything else. And what do you mean by that? So she was so infamous that people used the word restellism as a euphemism for abortion. So, um, you know, you might come across a, an angry editorial in the Polyanthos newspaper, which was run by this guy named George Washington Dixon, who kind of styled himself as, as her major kind of enemy. He would say things like, restellism is now so widespread in the city that da-da-da, you know, um, so, and people would know what he meant. And it's just so interesting how you're using lists. And in this case, you use a variety of synonyms mm -hmm. and then a colon and then what the synonyms might represent mm -hmm. to the women who mm -hmm. are in these circumstances. Reader, my reader, pin back your ears. It's the hush of mantilla lace. It's the sound of my neighbors burning milk jugs in the yard. To the window, I turn my eyes and see my own underwear at the moment blowing off the line across the lawn like cotton shopping bags as ladies wish to be. I see most clearly as a big woman in the National Police Gazette. As a reader, because you call him dear reader or mm -hmm, her, mm -hmm. uh, dear reader, my reader. Mm -hmm. As a reader of poetry or a reader in general, how would you like the reader to be open-minded about this? I would want someone to have that experience of seeing something in a way that they haven't seen it before. And I think seeing something anew is the pleasure of poetry. And so my, my greatest hope would be that somebody would have that experience of seeing something anew. And I also would like to invite a reader into maybe experiencing maybe parts of our history that they might not be familiar with. And I guess the one thing I would not want is I would not want someone to read this poem feeling like they were trying to make a judgment about Anne Lohman or about Madame Rostella. I would want someone to be asking the same question that I went and asking, what does this person mean, rather than is this person good or bad? That would be my greatest wish and I think would, would be the best way to read it. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. 
We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters. Let's return to our conversation with poet Abby Miner as we hear about the poem Once in a Black Silk Gown, a film noir, and the life and death of Anne Lohman, known as Madame Rustel, the wickedest woman in New York. So this one begins with a letter. It's sort of me, yeah, Mm -hmm. less her, more me, and I think it comes sort of two-thirds of the way through the poem. I called it Silver, and it's also kind of a list. I just, again, because I didn't have much information about her, I had to take one little thing and then just play with it, which also gave me great permission to remind myself again and again, this isn't really about the historical her, it's about my experience of her. Lynn Hedginian says, poetry is about the experience of experience. And so I kept that in mind, too. I'm misquoting, I'm sure, but that's the the idea. So being able to say, okay, I don't have to necessarily even recreate what her dining room looked like when I'm thinking about her silver cutlery. I can go in some other direction. And so that's what I did with this poem. And um, I'll read it. Silver. Dear journalists, dear men of medicine, do speak of her solid silver services, the highest thermal and electric conductivity of any body. Do speak of our bodies. Do speak. Speak. Some bodies have clearly become magma and cooled again many times since the accretion of the solar system. Can you speak of them? And am I done yet? Am I done yet? So speak of her cutlery, her candlesticks. Speak of her. Speak of her alias. Speaking of. Speaking of my silver age. Speak of my silver bromide the color of my hair. Speak Speak of my silver certificate. I present you with it. And and speak of my silver fur, beneath which I stand and grow my little fangs. And of my silver fish, injurious to my papers and starched clothes. My silver fox. Did you see that lady, the one smiling in such a sweet, motherly way? My silver fulminate. Touch it, and it explodes. And of my silver halide, you can develop it later. My silver iodide, so let us seed clouds. My silver lining, if you're dark, don't start a pining. My silver nitrate, my lunar caustic. My silver screen in my American mind. My silver sides. My silver star metal, I am gallant. And of my silver tongue, listen, listen. And of my silverware, my sense of the real, my epic glare. And of my silverweed, potentillas with silky hairs, native to Europe, but introduced elsewhere. She worked on a sliding scale, which sort of suggests that she also had a consciousness of people's different economic realities. But... It is important to note, you know, she did become wealthy and a lot of her clients were wealthy. And that's one of the things she was criticized for. So she's kind of an interesting intersection of commerce and reproductive liberty and also journalism because she was married to a journalist. A lot of arguments around her played out in city papers. She wrote letters to the editor quite often. And that's kind of the only documentation that I found. You're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's return to our discussion with poet Abby Miner about her long poem, Once in a Black Silk Gown, a film noir. This section contains references to self-harm and suicide. Let's talk about the trial. There were two major trials, 1841 and 1847. In 1841, she was indicted for the first time by the Court of General Sessions for the death of Anne Maria Purdy, 
who died two years after Madame Rustel supposedly provided an abortion for her. But that case was overturned by the New York Supreme Court. One of the reasons it was such a big case is because Maria Purdy was married and hadn't told her husband that she had gone to Loman for an abortion. Several years later, Purdy was on her deathbed with like tuberculosis or something, told her husband that she had had this abortion several years ago. And then somehow that turned into mm-hmm. a court case. So that's interesting. Not only the click and the color and the medical smell, but like x-rays of the mouths of men who created and hated her. So many chipped and oily words lined up in rows, black husks of sunflower seeds stuck in their old teeth. At the end of her life, a trial was scheduled that she never made it to. She never makes it to that trial, and here's why. In 1873, the Comstock Act was passed, and this is an act that's familiar to a lot of folks who study lots of different kinds of histories because it affected a lot of people. It did a number of things. Anthony Comstock's goal was to root out vice, and he defined a lot of things under that umbrella. One of the things the Comstock Act did was it made possession or distribution of obstetrical instruments by anyone not an obstetrician a crime. So Mm. here you can see, again, the Mm -hmm. kind of codification of medical power. So this act is passed in 1873. In 1878, he really wanted to get her. He, He knew about her and was probably angry that she had sort of eluded the law for so long. And so he went to her house undercover. He went as someone who was seeking help for a woman, you know, said, I, I need some pills or powders for to make an abortion happen. She tells him to come back the next day. He comes back with a warrant for her arrest. And all I know about this or that scholars know and that I found in the reading that I did is that she offers to give him a ride down to the station. No music. February 1878. Comstock came posing as a customer. She asked him to come back and sold him a box of pills. He produced a warrant for her arrest. She invited him to ride with her in her carriage down to the station, and so together rode, and so we sway together like fleas in the long feathers of her hat held from the inside we together ride. The poet embodies two people. She mm-hmm, embodies mm-hmm. Comstock. Mm-hmm. Like a flea in the black. Yeah. Like, I'm there too. Yeah, we're all there. But yeah, we're all there together. Maybe that's the Walt Whitman lover in me. I think in a lot of ways, part of the dealing with all these bodies in this poem is this this desire to say, let's all get in here together. I mean, I really love the idea of we are all part of this crazy, terrible, beautiful story, and we should be riding together like fleas. So they drive down to the station in her carriage together. I don't know why she did that. And a trial is scheduled. Yeah, yeah so what an odd... It's odd, yeah. Right, I mean, because you get arrested and then off you go and off he goes, but together they go together, so there's a little decorum. Exactly, (laughs) exactly, yeah. And then a trial is scheduled for April 1st, and I think at this point she knows her time is up and she knows that she probably will be incarcerated For for a long time. In reporting the events leading up to her death, the Times described Lohman as desperate. Synonyms for desperate include frantic, eager, careless, risky, wretched, threatening, and determined. Also, at the end of your tether. Towards the end of her life, Lohman rambled restlessly about the house, She wrung her hands asking, what shall I do? What shall I do? Her agony at times broke forth in moans. 
If I sing the body conductive, I sing a singed rail. I sing risky, wretched, undivided from a black silk gown, a white satin bonnet, a heavy lace veil. I sing it with my hands. I sing it with my third eye closed. I sing it zapped and rolling up the dust of the Fifth Avenue. If I live as a symbolic enemy, what shall I do? What shall I do? Shall I name myself for you? And so she kills herself. And when that's announced in the court on April 1st, everybody thinks it's an April Fool's joke. You know, they say the trial is called off because she's not coming. And so people are really shocked by this. And I believe it's it's front page news in the New York Times that she's died. Maybe I might be making some poetic license that it's front page news, but it's certainly big news. second in the New York Times, end of a criminal life. Her daughter's daughter, blazing with diamonds, driving in the splendid equipage of her grandmother. Her body, the right external carotid artery, was severed. The jugular veins on both sides were cut through that she was again and again called bloody, as though it wasn't precisely blood that her clients were looking for. In 1878, after midnight on April 1st, she who was known as the wickedest, etc., got up in the pre-dawn, filled her tub with tepid water, unfastened her nightgown's diamond button, and opened her throat with a knife. The diamond button in the New York Times article that was published right after her death. In the article, you know, it's sort of replaying the scene of her death, which again, there's kind of no way I think that this reporter in in 1878 would have been somehow inside her house watching this scene. But in the article, it says, you know, she went and got a knife, she went to her bathroom, she ran the water, and she unfastened the diamond button on her nightgown. Mm. Now, who knows if she had a diamond button on her nightgown? At that point, the caricature of Madame Ristel would have been so well established. must have been speculating on this kind of violence. The only document that I know of that describes her death is this April 2nd, 1878 New York Times article. The Times described her physical body, but they used her symbolic body's name. The actual woman didn't matter. Who they were convicting was this this caricature, this figure of female power, wealth. 
And then, you know, I've read a couple of secondary sources, contemporary scholars that are also drawing from that article. I know when she died, Anthony Comstock said, a bloody end to a bloody life. So many people have disliked Anthony Comstock. In retrospect, it's true, the federal law passed in his name created problems for a lot of us. It wasn't until 1971 that Americans were once again allowed to send information on contraception through the mail, or until the next year that the Supreme Court got around to striking down state laws prohibiting the use of contraceptives by unmarried persons. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with poet Abby Miner about her book, As I Said, A Descent, and her poem, Once in a Black Silk Gown, a film noir. Tell us just a little bit about this moment. It's at the end, Mm -hmm. and I get the feeling that there's Abby in a red hillbilly sweater who crosses into the trees and snow thinking, microfilm. And... All the work that you had gone through to put this together, so many images here with diamonds and the screen and pondering and the notion of flight. I did write this at the end. I had had been working on this poem for a couple of years and, and was sort of coming to an end and had applied to all these different residencies and fellowships all over the country and and was rejected from all of those. And then sort of out of nowhere, a friend of mine who lives in New York City and has an apartment said, hey, if you want to come stay here for a week. And I went there to finish this poem, but I didn't know that I was going to do more writing while I was there. I went there to do a little bit of research and to finish. And it turned out I was so happy that I wasn't somewhere in Wyoming or somewhere in Massachusetts or when I was working because it turned out I really did need to be in New York to finish this poem because I went to the New York Historical Society thinking I was just going to get a few more little details for some other poems. And then this new poem came out of that experience. And it really was, for me, um, a feeling of, yeah, closure, peace, feeling that I had dealt with a lot of the questions that I had come into this poem with in a way that felt satisfying to me. So felt like a really personal journey. I had also just read the play Angels in America for the first time. So there was some really compelling connections in that story to what I was thinking about and also just the way that that story blends kind of magical realism or unrealism, really, like um, these wild magical things. Felt like there was some connections there. The Angel of Bethesda figures in in that play, and so I wanted to go see The Angel of Bethesda, so I literally was just on this kind of personal journey, and it turned into this section that helped to end the poem. Leaving the New York Historical Society Library, this is a quiet scene. That's me, in a red hillbilly sweater. I cross into the trees and snow thinking, microfilm, whoa, how dental. Going into Central Park now, I freeze away all unworkable grief and go into the nourishment of black, ice, white, deep green, and smoke. I loved going into the reading room. I loved the heavy sage green drapes, 20 feet high and tied with a gold cord. I loved wearing a name tag and no pens and only five sheets of paper allowed, feeling so dreamy every time I pushed the ponderous door the wrong way. The whole time I was peering into something murky, a huge black diamond on the screen. 
One tract about her warned women who might abort. Write this in letters of fire on your memory. When we wait no further, we strip from our Have I yet, and have I written a burn upon my secret brain? My memory is a flame. When we wait no further, we'll drown in our soul while the river. What I needed wasn't there in the archive, but rather at the angel of Bethesda, her wings upswept, cast like sharp semicolons against the sky. And the people, my people, going carefully across the terrace, across the bright red fishbone pattern of frozen brickwork underneath. Was I an angel? Was I a fiend? Was I infamous and luminous? I saw you there, people, cold to the bone, taking pictures of yourselves with the angel in her bare feet, with a bronze lily in her left hand. I saw the lake like a thin black diamond in the bezel of the red emergency ice rescue ladders, oddly delicate, hung on hooks at intervals along the shore. In one court transcript, it was written, the people, versus Rastel, alias Loman. And in the park above the angel, I saw two equivalent geese in the sky. I have humility before gowns made of metal. I have humility before veils, before the waters and the ratchety glass eye. No dead man will catch me stooping to prove that she was good. Once in a black silk gown, Once in a white satin bonnet. Once in a heavy lace veil. that I tried to make clear to myself that I was dealing with Madame Rastel, the character, rather than Anne Lohman, the historical figure, even though I deal with both of them, is because I felt like, you know, I, I sort of wanted to be respectful for the, to the historical Anne Lohman, and again, also to not get caught up in this question of, was she the actual woman who lived, making good decisions, making bad decisions? Really more, I wanted to ask, what did this character of Madame Rastel mean, and what does she still mean with us today? 
Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to composers, musicians, and singers. Miranda Kira. Jessica Fuller. For the beautiful soundscapes depicting Madame Ristel and Anne Lohman. Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestra of One for helping to mix and for Master, the episode. Thank you to poet Abby Miner for taking us on this journey, who has written poetry that would be a silent film. The title cards would go once in a black silk gown, once in a heavy lace veil. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words from Frank Stanford. What we see is not what we have ever seen before. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.